Good morning. Hello. Good. We are here. Alcohol. What a polarising topic. Now, just a reminder that we are working through the Proverbs this term, uh, and rather than doing it chapter by chapter as we normally would do when we're working through a book, we're picking out topics uh, to, to springboard out of the wisdom of the Proverbs and into scriptures to what we should know as Christians. And today we're going to talk about alcohol. It is a very polarising topic. On the one hand, alcohol is good. As we're going to see very soon, it's part of God's good creation. It's part of the blessings that God can pour out on people. It's an area where Christians have freedom to partake or to not partake is up to the individual. But on the other hand, alcohol is a problem. It's unambiguously a problem in our society. I went looking for some statistics. Unfortunately, I made the mistake of thinking that that would be big enough to read, and so none of you can. But let me tell you quickly through the first three boxes, one in six people consume alcohols at levels placing them at lifetime risk of an alcohol-related injury of disease. One in six. One in four people have consumed alcohol at levels placing them at risk of harm on a single occasion at least monthly so once a month one in four of us is consuming alcohol to the point where it is dangerous to us and this is the crazy one to me one in seven people have consumed 11 or more standard drinks in the last year the statistics can go on and on and on you can go talk about how much money we spend how many car accidents involve alcohol how much i mean the cops left the room now but it would be interesting to hear from him how many times he gets called out to something that involves alcohol it's a problem in our society it's a problem in our churches i heard a story just this week of a church where after the service just think, 10 o'clock service, family service. After church, a bunch of families would go together to the house of one of the members and as they had lunch together, the parents would get roaring drunk. And, you know, the kids are playing around to the point where dads are out in the garden spewing kind of drunk. And we're not talking, you know, fringe families of church. We're talking, the, 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 you know, the, if, if we've got the whites and the wests and the breaks are doing this after church kind of thing, right? As, we do. As you do. In fact, the fact that two of those are parish councillors, well, parish councillors were an award, it would be all the more interesting. But now, before we start to get too carried away at throwing stones, that church was this one. Now, it's long enough ago that the people involved aren't still here. I'm not pointing fingers at current. It, it wasn't the whites and the west and the breaks. Okay, please. Don't think it was them. Alcohol is a problem in our families. It is estimated that over a million children in Australia are affected by the consequences of alcohol. Now, this sermon is going to be slightly different. Usually, I try and have kind of a, a flow, one thing that we're working through. But because we've got to pull together a bunch of threads, we're going to see, we're going to spend time in five different teachings the Bible has that impact our understanding of alcohol. Five threads that we've got to pull together. So I guess what I'm asking is don't make your mind up until the end. All right, we've, got, we've got to hold five things together as we think about this topic. They're listed in your handout. By all means, take some notes as we go. The first is this. Alcohol is good. Alcohol is good. Now, as we're in Proverbs, let's start at Proverbs chapter 3. 
we read this, Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. It is seen as a blessing from God to have a whole stack of new wine. Or in Proverbs chapter 9, we we read of the the wisdom, we read in chapter 9 and verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She sent out her maids and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Come, eat my food, drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways. And you will live. Now it's a metaphor, okay? Wisdom is preparing a table saying, come and partake. Come and partake of wisdom. But the picture is one of wine as a good thing. Of God's goodness. In Isaiah 55, likewise, this metaphor of the good living that God gives includes wine. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Don't go and pursue a life outside of God. Come and live God's good ways. The most explicit uh, reference to wine as good is from Psalm 104. In Psalm 104, we read the following. You might might want to look it up. Now, some of the passages, the little ones, the short ones, I'll put up on the screen from us. The slightly longer ones, I'm going to turn up and read from the Scriptures. Um, I'm not going to go kind of slow enough to give you a lot of time to look. So if you're a really quick Bible flip-up, by all means, look it up. If not, jot it down, look at it later again to remind yourself. Psalm 104 and verse 14. God, it's talking about the provision of God for for all creatures... God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food for the earth. God makes wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. All creatures look to God to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Wine is part of the good creation God has made. Now that's just not the Old Testament. As we come into the New Testament, the similar teaching continues. You might remember John chapter 2, the very first miracle that we have recorded of John's. Do you remember what he did? Of, of Jesus, sorry, not of John's. It wasn't the first miracle of John, it was the first miracle of Jesus. What did he do? He turned water into wine. He goes, he's at this wedding, they run out of wine, they, Jesus tells them, fill up these massive jugs with water and hey presto, it's the good stuff. Now the point of that miracle wasn't about wine, the point of that miracle was about Jesus. This, the first of his signs, he did at Cana and they beheld his glory. But you've got to take that at least implicitly Jesus is okay with wine as such. He's making a whole barrel load of the good stuff for him. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says to Timothy, don't just drink water, have a little wine. Paul commands Timothy, go and drink wine, it's good for you, he says. It's kind of the opposite of what we'd say these days, right? Water, water's the good drink, everything else is bad. He's like, no, not just water, have some alcohol. The point is this, very simply, 
Alcohol is good. It is part of God's good creation to be received with thankfulness. Right, first point, very simple, alcohol is good. Second point, drunkenness is bad. Just as clearly as alcohol is good in the scriptures, drunkenness is bad. Again, we start in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, I've got it up on the screen. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Note the consequences of pursuing alcohol to an extreme extent. Or Proverbs 21, whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. Now, okay, the olive oil one, I mean, it's kind of what we're all into, right? Olive oil these days. Maybe if you're a little bit really into it, you're into avocado oil or something like that. But ignore that one for a moment. Right? The pursuit of wine, this expensive, luxurious thing that you get into, will result in poverty, Well, Proverbs chapter 23, come and look this one up. This was our first Bible reading. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 19. I hope you kept a finger in there if you were, uh, as the Bible was read for us. I'll give you a little tip, right? Most of the Bible readings are usually chosen by the preacher because it's going to refer to something they're going to say. So odds are fairly high that at some point we're going to take you to that Bible reading. You might as well keep a finger in each of the Bible readings that we do. Proverbs 23 and verse 19 says the following. Listen, my son, and be wise. Keep your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. This is wisdom. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Now, there's a problem here in that some of us are rich enough that even if we go and drink to excess, it doesn't make us poor. We can afford to do this. And so you say, well, if the consequence of, if the reason not to drink is because you're going to get poor, well, I don't have that problem. I can afford it. So I'll just carry on with it. But no, the writer of the Proverbs wants to make sure that we understand this isn't just about getting poor. Alcohol is dangerous when it leads to that extent. Jump over to verse 29. Proverbs 23 and verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine. Those who go sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. For in the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? I'm not much of a sailor. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, the extent of my sailing experience involves two very different experiences. One was work functions, where work used to pay for us to go uh, on these massive yachts cruising around the, uh, the harbour, eating and drinking while someone else did all the work. So that's not really sailing. And the other extreme of my sailing experience is my dad's little sailboat, which is really a glorified windsurfer, where two people fit basically if you're sitting in each other's lap. And, and it, anyway seems a very foolish place to be 
on the high seas asleep on top of the rigging. The ropes that are going to be swinging around and being pulled to and fro as the sail gets whipped around. To be someone who is lost in alcohol in that way is extremely foolish. Now the New Testament is full of both warnings and commands against drunkenness. You can go and read in Luke, in Ephesians, in Galatians, in 1 Peter, in Romans, in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Corinthians. All of them have warnings against the effects and the dangers and commands against doing it. But I wonder if I can't just illustrate it with two examples. Let me tell you the story of Noah. Noah was a godly, righteous man who listened to God. For a hundred years, he withstood the jeers of the people around him as he built a boat in the middle of the desert. He filled it with animals and then God rescued him from the, the, the deluge, the rain that killed everyone else. Noah was one of the only people who was saved, him and his immediate family. He was an obedient, righteous man who listened to God. They get out of the boat and what does he do? Plants grapes, makes wine, gets drunk. And what happens? Because of that, shame fell upon him. War broke out between his children and a curse was upon his family. Lot. Lot was the same. The one righteous man in the entire city. God rescues Lot out of it. He saves him. Lot listens and obeys when even his wife didn't. And what does Lot do? Gets drunk and impregnates both his daughters. See, drunkenness runs contrary to at least two Christian principles. Christians are people who are called, firstly, to be self-controlled. This is a control that is given by the Spirit, to be people who are influenced by God so that we control ourselves. That's a command given especially to young men, be self-controlled. And alcohol, by its nature, achieves the opposite. Oh, what I really like is that it lowers inhibitions, it makes me feel free. It affects your ability to control yourself. But it also runs contrary to the fact that as Christians, we are no longer slaves. We have been freed from slavery. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 from verse 15. He says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law? That is, there is no commandment not to drink. Does that mean that I can get on with it and do whatever I want? Paul says, by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone... To obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Christians have been freed from slavery. How foolish then to put yourself as a slave again under something other than obedience and righteousness. Thanks be to God, Paul says, that though you used to be slaves to sin... You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Christians ought not to be drunkards because we have been set free from slavery. Slavery from sin. Now I want to point out just for a moment a little confusion in our society about the problems of alcohol. You see, when we think about people who have a problem with alcohol, I don't know what you think of, I tend to think of, and the media seems to present the picture, that the people who have a problem with alcohol are footy players. 
I don't know why, but it's always the footy players. Out on Friday night, Saturday night, they're on a binge, right? They've had those 11 and drinks and more. They're just completely out of their brains. They punch someone in the face and then they pass out in the gutter somewhere, right? And we're like, well, that's, those are the people who have a problem with alcohol. But see, that's very different to an alcoholic. Because that footy player, he'll wake up on Monday, he'll go to work and he won't think twice about alcohol for the rest of the week. It doesn't bother him. He's not thinking about it. He's not planning his next drink. It's not, it's not an addiction that he has. It's a lifestyle choice that he's made. It's a, it's a very foolish lifestyle choice. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's right. But we think, on the other hand, and here's the contrast, right? The top left is the footy player. What about the person, however, who is a lovely middle-class person who never drinks to that level of excess? He's never in a drunken brawl or is found passed out on the street somewhere, but nonetheless spends every minute of every day looking forward to that civilised glass of red at the end of the day, who can't stop thinking about it and planning for it who looks to find their solace and their comfort and their peace. They are longing for it. They are looking forward to it. Because truly, that's the alcoholic. That is the person who is enslaved by alcohol to the point where they can't but think about it. We need to be very careful with how we think about slavery to alcohol because I suspect that for many of us, we're quite happy to fool ourselves. There were some interesting conversations after church this morning. Oh, gee, no, that's going to be hard, isn't it? You'll hear the challenge at the end of the sermon. Mm, I don't know if I can do that. Number one, alcohol is good. Number two, drunkenness is bad. Number three, leaders are held to a higher standard. Leaders are held to a higher standard. Come to Proverbs chapter 31. This one's worth looking up. Proverbs chapter 31. One of the few Proverbs that weren't written by Solomon. In fact, this proverb comes from someone's mum. So you know it's a good one. Proverbs chapter 31. Have a look at verse 1, right? The sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. Down to verse 4. She taught him this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the Lord decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. I give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. I mean, it's, a, it's a bleak picture at the end, right? Just numb those who are about to die. But know what it says to rulers. You have a responsibility. You must have your full faculties, lest it be that you forget the law and deprive someone of justice. And that is true for Christian leaders in all sorts of different areas. Here's Leviticus chapter 10. As God was speaking to Aaron, who would be the line of priests, listen what God said. Leviticus 10, it's on the screen. The Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink when you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is serious. Okay, This is very full on. Why? This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common between the unclean and the clean, so that you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. 
You, as a leader, as a priest before the people, you need to be able to distinguish between what's right and wrong. You need to be able to teach faithfully and you can't do that if you are impaired. We could go and read from uh, the, the, the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6, where again, the people who dedicate themselves to the Lord for the sake of having no trace of uncleanness were not to even touch the skin of a grape. You can go read Isaiah chapter 5, where the leadership of Israel perverted justice because of alcohol. Or 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the New Testament, as we get this same command, Christian leaders held to a higher standard. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, not given to drunkenness. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. Christian leaders are held to a higher standard, completely above reproach. Not even the hint of the possibility of something bad. Because you are charged with teaching, you are charged with modelling, you are charged with being able to differentiate between what is right and what is wrong. In Titus 1, the same teaching, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine but to teach what is good that is leaders and and i'm addressing our leaders now whether you're a bible study group leader a parish counselor whoever you are if you have people in your care and in your responsibility who you are to teach and to model to And I'm of half a mind to include parents in that because you have a responsibility to people to teach and to model are held to a higher standard. It's why our church events have zero alcohol. We'll get to that in a moment. Number one, alcohol is good. Number two, drunkenness is bad. Number three, leaders are held to a higher standard. Number four, Christians are free, and so we love. Christians are free, and so we love. There is no rule, there is no biblical commandment against drinking alcohol. Christians, you are free to do so. Now, I know that there are some denominations, some churches, some leaders that will preach abstinence and and teetotaling and, right, you must not drink. There is no biblical command, as far as I can see, that says you must not do it. There are good reasons for not doing it, but you are free to do so. However, in that freedom, Christians have a desire to do good for other people. That is what marks us out that we use our freedom in love and in service rather than in selfishness. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read from Romans 14, 19 on. He says this, Let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Work hard to build other people up. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Don't destroy your brother or your sister in Christ for the sake of what you're going to put in your mouth. All food is clean, but it is wrong for someone to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. 
You are free to drink. And so use your freedom in love. Use your freedom for the good of other people. Not selfishly. Right? Well, I'm free. I can do this. There's no rule against it. I can. So, right, I'm, no one's going to tell me not to. I'm free to do it. I'm just going to do it. It's my right to do it. No. It's your right to do it. It's your freedom to do it. And that means that you are free not to do it for the sake of others. Now, by the way, it's worth pointing out in, that, in those verses at the end there in verse 23, Paul says, the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats it. Because his eating is not from faith and everything not from faith is sin. So if you can't drink alcohol without feeling guilty, then stop. Because for you, it is sinful. You ought not to do it. But if you are somebody who thinks, no, I'm okay with this, then you may choose not to for the sake of others. Now you're like, well, hang on, David. How am I supposed to know if someone else has a problem with alcohol? How am I supposed to know if there's an alcoholic and I ought not to drink for their sake? How am I supposed to know if there's someone with a weak conscience, the conscience that says they shouldn't drink? And so, like, how, how am I supposed to know? Well, maybe you don't know. That doesn't stop you from using your freedom to not drink. But can I say, talk to people? I mean, it's not that hard, right? Hey, guys, I'm thinking of having a group over. I just want to check. Anyone have, anyone have a problem with alcohol? Like, it's okay to admit that. I was talking after church this morning with somebody who is a recovering alcoholic. She, she said to me, look, one in ten are going to be, at the very least, one in ten. So if there's ten people in your group, chances are one of them is struggling with alcohol. You, you don't even need to ask. Just assume that's the case. Right? Again, it's why our churches, we have zero alcohol, except for communion, which we're about to have. Um, but, but even then, there's an alternative. Right? We, we purposefully want to care for those people for whom this is a problem. Alcohol is good. Drunkenness is bad. Leaders are held to a high standard. Christians are free, so we love. Fifthly and finally, I really wanted this to be a positive sermon. It's so easy, I think, for a sermon on alcohol to be a bunch of no, 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 don't, 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 naughty, 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 bad people. But I don't want it to be that because as Christians, we have something so much greater we have a source of joy and hope and peace and gladness and comfort and courage that is so much bigger than anything you will ever find at the bottom of a bottle. It was in that passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Don't get drunk on much wine, but what are we to do instead? Be filled with the Spirit. Do you ever wonder? such a strange contrast. Why does Paul have this contrast between getting filled with wine and getting filled with the Spirit? I take it as because what we have in God is so much greater. It is a source of so much more gladness. It is a source of so much more comfort and peace and courage than anything you will ever be able to find. I mean, do you find that you, you need a drink to, to calm your woes? Why don't you pray instead and find the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? Do you, do you need a drink to give you joy? You just can't enjoy the moment without alcohol. Why would you not instead bask in the love of God for you? Do you think that you need a drink to give you courage for life, to make the decisions you need to make? Why would you not instead depend upon God who is for you such that nothing can separate you from his love? 
And I'm going to say this isn't true of just alcohol, by the way. It's true of all addictions. We are very good at finding things to replace God with. We have something so, 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 so much greater than alcohol. So there's no rule against drinking, but drunkenness is wrong. And by the way, if you're struggling to work out, well, how much is too much, right? What's, what's the level? What's an okay and then that's not okay? I think that if you're asking that question, you're already going about it the wrong way. Let's, let's just point that out. But at the very least, it's interesting that our government has set guidelines beyond which they think you are impaired. Just think about driving, right? They say if you have two standard drinks in the first hour and one drink per hour after that, you're probably okay. Anything over that is going to impair you to the point where you should not drive. So why do you think that that is not going to impair you in other areas? But even though there is no rule against drinking, we are shaped by love for others. We want good for others. We are shaped by the responsibilities that we take on to be able to fulfill them well. And in the end, we have something so, so, so much greater. I want to leave you with a challenge. I want to put a challenge before you. Don't have any alcohol for the next month. Don't drink. Now, this isn't a law, right? I'm not saying the Bible says, Jesus says this is the case and you must do it. Or No, right? I'm, I'm suggesting this as a challenge to you for your good. For some of you, it'll be really easy. You're a teetotaler. You already decided a long time ago that you're not going to drink. And you're like, oh, I won at church this week. I'm already good, right? That's... Actually, you know what? You could spend the time thinking about how you can practice self-control in other areas of your life. You're going to have plenty of challenges yourself. You can spend the time thinking about how you can love sacrificially. But I want the challenge before us for the purpose of self-reflection, for the purpose of examination. I want you to do it intentionally, prayerfully. I want you to make sure that you're not kidding yourself, that you are enslaved once again. And look, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I've already got an open bottle in the fridge at home. What am I supposed to do with that? Right? Go home and pour it down the drain. Honestly, if you, if you can't do that, then that's a worry. It's just booze. You've got water in the tap. You're not going to die of thirst. Right? I sprung it on you so that you couldn't finish that bottle before you came to church. Right? And if you find that it, the thought of that is just too much to bear, that you need that thing you're looking forward to at the end of the day to get you through the day, then please, would you replace it with prayer? The amount of time that you are going to spend having that glass of whatever it is, the bottle of whatever it is at the end of the day, get on your knees and pray to your Heavenly Father instead. It will be so much a better use of your time. And perhaps even the thought of the challenge is already enough for you to realise that you need to come and have a chat with someone. Let alone when we ask you next week how you're going with it. We have something so much greater, friends. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place, who rose to give us new life and who has poured his spirit out into our lives to bring joy and peace and comfort and courage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit poured out on us. We thank you for the work of your son that fills us with hope. We pray for those of us who are enslaved once again, that you would save them out of that slavery, free them from the bondage. 
We pray for all of us, Father, that you would give us hearts of love that are always prepared to give up all of our freedoms for the sake of others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.